the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved, for I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. After she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face, and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise I will strip her naked, and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen, intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. 
I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But in me she forgot, declares the Lord. Well, thank you. Lots to read there. Uh, good morning, everyone. If I haven't met you before, my name is Jack. I'm, um, I'm one of the pastors here, as Carl said. Um, I'm not sure if you can kind of remember when, when this happened to you, but I was just thinking the other day and, and reflecting on when mum taught me how to hang the washing out on the line. Uh, I don't know if you can, can remember when this happened for you. I'll just get it set up here so you can see how good my skills are at hanging the washing up. There we go. Nice. So mum taught me how to, to hang the washing up on the line, and I just remember it being really hard. It was never a chore that I really enjoyed doing that much. This was So last week when mum started teaching me how to hang the washing on the line, that was a joke. That was a joke. It was, it was actually the week before that. Um, but when mum started teaching me how to hang the washing on the line, I just really didn't enjoy it. I found it to be a really hard chore to do, and didn't, you know, I just didn't enjoy it. Um, I don't know... Like how you think about chores today, but you know it's a really good thing to do, to do these chores, like hanging the washing on the line, but while you know it's a good thing to do, sometimes it's just really hard, and you just struggle, and you just kind of drag your feet doing it, even though you know it's a really good thing to do. Uh, I don't know how you feel about coming to books in the Old Testament, like the book of Hosea, but reading through Hosea can feel like a really hard chore. You know, it's something that you know is really good to do. But man, it can feel really hard to do it. It can feel really hard to do it. And it's for a, a few different reasons. I mean, firstly, it's a really confronting book to read. And that, that's really what we've read in these first couple of chapters this morning. God is angry at his people and he judges them. And that is really confronting. That is hard to read. But there's also all this weird kind of imagery and language that is used, all these different names of people and names of places that we're just kind of meant to understand. It's hard for that reason. And then, and then Hosea's told to go and marry a prostitute. And you're kind of like, what, what's going on? It's just kind of strange. It's hard. It's difficult to read. But I want to say there's one more reason why reading Hosea is actually quite a difficult thing for us to do. And it's to do actually with dirty laundry. It's to do with dirty laundry. I don't know if you've heard the expression said airing out someone's dirty laundry, but it's that idea of all the things that someone is, uh, is ashamed of, their guilt, all the things they've done wrong, just being put on display uh, for everyone to see. And you know, in the book of Hosea, that's really what we're seeing. We're seeing all of the Israelites' dirty laundry hung out on display before God, before us, and God is angry. It's confronting. But I want to say it's even more confronting because reading through Hosea doesn't just make us look at the Israelites' dirty laundry. Actually, it makes us look at our own dirty laundry before God. That can be a really hard and confronting thing. Um, when I was younger, my brother whacked me in the face with an oar, which kind of explains a bit of this, I guess. But um, I'm not sure why there was an oar alongside a swimming pool, but there was. And my brother picked it up and he was rowing, just standing there, rowing along like a champion, going really fast. And, uh, and I was just swimming laps in the pool and just got smacked in the face with this oar out of nowhere. Reading Hosea can also feel a little bit like getting whacked in the face with an oar. Just kind of swimming along, minding your own business, when suddenly, oh, there's an oar coming towards my face, and then bang! It's kind of shock. It's, there's not a little bit of pain as this kind of thing just appears and confronts you 
reading Hosea can feel a lot like that as well. It can be a very hard book to read. But you know, mum taught me a lesson, another lesson about dirty laundry, and this might be, this might be new for some people, might not have learnt this before. Really pay attention. All right, dirty laundry, it doesn't just deal with itself when you put it into the dirty laundry basket. It doesn't just magically disappear. This was news to me. This was amazing. See, something else has to happen for that dirty laundry to actually be dealt with. And that's why reading the book of Hosea is so great for us to do together. Because in Hosea, while we are confronted with dirty laundry and it's on display for God to see, we also read that God can deal with our dirty laundry. Hosea is an excellent book for us to be able to spend time in together. I don't know, uh, you might be here this morning and you might have a view of God as some kind of angry and and cold-hearted dictator kind of person who just wants to bend people to their will. What we see in Hosea actually is the opposite. What we see in the Bible is that God is not represented that way at all. See, what we see in Hosea is a God who is completely committed to righting wrongdoing, is committed to justice, and is also fully committed to his love for us. And in Hosea, we get to see how those two things intersect. We're spending three weeks uh, in the book of Hosea together, and the big idea for the series is this. God restores what we mess up dirty laundry, but not before addressing the mess we've made. God restores what we mess up, but not before addressing the mess that we've made. That's the big idea of this series. And this morning, we're we're diving into the first three chapters together and looking at the narrative part of Hosea. And what we learn from Hosea now, in these three chapters, is that Hosea's experience shows us just how much sin messes up our relationship with God but it also shows us what God is willing to do to set things right and bring us back into relationship with Him. You'll see if you have an outline uh, that there are three different points to do with dirty laundry. The first is what dirty laundry is. Uh, The second is what dirty laundry does. And the third thing is what God does about dirty laundry, followed by our fourth point that we'll get to dig into at the end there as well. But firstly, what dirty laundry looks like. Uh, when I was younger, I went to uh, North Queensland, tropical North Queensland, to, to visit my family, and there was a thunderstorm while we were inside. Uh, and I was quite young, I was with my brother and my cousins, and we were pretty bored inside and couldn't really do anything. But then we looked outside, and the rain had stopped, and there was just this massive mud pile in the backyard. So what did we do? We just went out and picked it up and started chucking it at each other and having the best mud fight you've ever seen. We're throwing it at each other, we're covered from head to toe in mud, and we loved it. But then something dawned on us. See, we looked around the backyard, and we realized that we actually weren't alone. There were some cows that were running around the place, a couple of dogs, some sheep, some, some goats. It became pretty apparent to us that we weren't just throwing mud at each other. Um, it was pretty gross. <laughs> But then what did we do when we realized? We went, oh, that's disgusting! And then we picked up more mud and kept throwing it at each other because it was so much fun. We loved it. But what did our parents do when they walked outside and realized what what we were doing? They took one look at us, said, that's disgusting. You're not allowed to take one single foot inside of this house until that dirty laundry is dealt with. They looked at us and just went, no. That's disgusting. 
Well, at this point in the storyline of the Bible, I want to say this is kind of what Israel looks like to God, except it is so much worse. It is so much worse. Because it's not just some mud that they're throwing around at each other that has covered them and that's made God think, no, I don't want to be with you. It's that they've been unfaithful in marriage. They've committed adultery against God, going back on promises that they made to him, to their rescuer, their provider, to their faithful and loving God, and leaving him in order to worship other gods. They did exactly what they'd promised not to do. Um, At this point in history, the kingdom of Israel had been split into two different kingdoms. In 1 Kings chapter 12, we can read about this. The whole kingdom of Israel was together. But then in 1 Kings 12, we read that the kingdom of Israel splits. Two tribes remain in the southern kingdom, and they're called Judah. And then ten tribes form the northern kingdom, and they keep the name of Israel. Now, the book of Hosea uh, is addressed primarily to the northern kingdom, to Israel, and that's where Hosea lives, that's where he grew up. But it also has a lot to say about the southern kingdom as well. But at this point in history, God was looking at the northern kingdom of Israel and what they'd done before him was horrendous. They'd rejected him, turned from him, gone back on all their promises that they'd made to him. You can see on our, on our washing line here, there's the, the story of the Bible, the storyline of the Bible. And we'll spend a little bit of time in this storyline throughout the weeks to come. But for today, let me just take you back to a point in history in Exodus, when God had rescued the Israelites from slavery to the Egyptians and made them his people. See, it was here that the Israelites first promised themselves to God to be his people and to follow him and only him. And we read in Exodus chapter 19, it should be on the screen behind me from verse 4, God says to them, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you were to speak to the Israelites. Moses went back, brought the people together. The people respond saying, we will do everything the Lord has said. Committed themselves to him. You know, the very next chapter sees God telling the Israelites what it looks like for them to act in their relationship with God. In Exodus chapter 20, uh, God says to the Israelites in verse 3, "Uh, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. See, the Israelites had promised to remain faithful to God, to bow down to no other God but Him, to the God who had shown His love and His faithfulness to them again and again, who'd rescued them. And what do we read when we come to Hosea chapter 1, verse 2? We read this. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Israel has done exactly what they said they wouldn't. They have turned away from God. They are bowing down to the gods of the nations around them and forsaking their relationship with God. 
And it's pretty confronting, isn't it, that God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute, isn't it? It sounds a little bit ridiculous, but this is the point. See, Hosea's marriage to Goma shows what is happening between God and his people who have promised themselves exclusively to each other. And God likens his relationship to Israel to being married to a prostitute, to someone who sells himself to others for sex, yet who has promised to be faithful exclusively only to their spouse. You know, this is not someone who um, has been oppressed. It's important to note. Goma is not someone who's been oppressed or has become a prostitute um, as a victim of hard circumstances. That's not what's going on here. What we are seeing is someone who is selfish, spiteful, and who turns her back on her husband again and again and again to pursue her lovers, thinking they can give her something that her husband can't. It's a pretty alien thing to think about bowing down to gods like this. I mean, the nations around us aren't building up gigantic calves and saying, bow down to these gods and worship them and follow them, are they? But I want to say, actually, what we see the Israelites doing, it's actually representative of all of humanity. It actually shows how all of humanity treats God. If we read from Hosea chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. Their mother's been unfaithful. She has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. God says, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. See, ultimately what the Israelites and what all of humanity has said to God is, I don't need you. I don't want you, and I'm going to find satisfaction and meaning, real life, and and fulfillment that I want elsewhere. I'm going to go after other lovers who can uh, really fulfill and satisfy me. I'm going to go after my career, after my boyfriend or girlfriend, after sex, after my sport, after my wealth, even after my family, because they can give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen. In other words, they can give me real satisfaction and fulfillment. But the thing is, we never find it. We are always searching because we can't find it anywhere other than with God. Even in verse 7, God wants Israel to return to him, recognizing that they were always better off off with him. I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Now, we all have that dirty laundry where we've said to God, I don't need you. I'm going to turn my back on you and find my fulfillment elsewhere. You see, sin isn't just about breaking, breaking some rules. It's about pursuing other lovers. It's about betraying relationship with God instead of pursuing him. That is what dirty laundry looks like. This horrifically marked blackened, so dirty that no one wants to let it in the house. Because the consequences of this thing, 
are dreadful. We've looked at what dirty laundry is. Now point two on your outlines, what dirty laundry does. Now, I've got a few parents in here. I don't know if you can... You can you, I, I don't know if you can. I know you can remember when you were trying to find a name for your kids or for your child. I know you can remember trying to find that name. You might have uh, been looking through a name, a book of, of children's names, trying to find the perfect name. I don't know, like, some great names in there. For example, uh, Jack means absolute legend. That's in there. Page 552. It's, it's not really... Um, but you try really hard to find the right name for your children, names that, that mean something great. But I bet you never came across the names Jezreel, Lorulma, or Loami. Those names just don't appear in those books. So why do they appear in this book, in Hosea, in verses 4 to 9 of chapter 1? Well, I want to say the names of Hosea and Gomer's children shows what dirty laundry does. It completely destroys the relationship between God and Israel. And it means it brings God's judgment. The name Jezreel refers to a massacre that you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 9. When a guy called Jehu destroyed the line of Ahab and took up the throne of Israel for himself. And you know, this was all good because God had told him to get rid of Ahab because of all the horrible things that he was doing. But when you read it, you read of a bloodthirsty and terrible rise to the throne of Jehu as he goes above and beyond what God has told him to do. It is bloodthirsty. And what we end up reading about him is that he's just like Ahab. He's just like the other kings of Israel has been, turning his back on God and leading the Israelites away from him instead of toward him. And here God says he has had enough. It is time for Israel, for those ten tribes, for the northern kingdom to come to an end. It's time for God to judge the line of Jehu and Israel. And we read that this judgment comes without God extending his love and compassion to the Israelites anymore that they had known since day dot. The love and compassion that had withheld God's judgment from them time and time again is now not there. Their time has come. Judgment has come. And that's what the second name means. And that's exactly what happens in about the year 722 when uh, BC, when Assyria comes, comes knocking at the door, the northern kingdom is destroyed. Homes destroyed. People scattered into exile. This is what the kids are looking at today. The northern kingdom of Israel never to rise again. And they are no longer God's people, lo ami. That's what that means. They are not his people, and he is not their God. The promises that we read from Exodus 19 are shattered. What these names show us is that sin destroys relationship with God, and that God will judge us for it. It's, it's confronting. And God pleads, actually, that Israel would rid themselves of their adultery and that they would come back to him. In chapter 2, God tells uh, Hosea, Rebuke your mother. Make Israel understand what has happened. Our relationship has been destroyed. She's no longer my wife. I'm not her husband. Make Israel understand what has happened, what's gone wrong. Remove the adultery. Otherwise, things will not go well. From verse 3 onwards, We read what that will look like. 
Israel will be brought back to the state that they were as they were taken out of slavery to the Egyptians, into the wilderness, laid bare and naked, nothing to protect them, nothing to cover them, thirsting and hungering, but finding no satisfaction. And God is not with them, and they are not his people. Sin shatters our relationship with God, and God will judge us for it. Now, it's pretty easy to to just leave this stuff in the pages of history. I mean, God said that he would judge the Israelites, and, and that's what he did, right? But if what we're reading here is that God follows through on his judgment of sin, then it means that when he says that he will judge us for our sin, then we need to take him seriously, because when God talks about judging sin in the New Testament, it's no longer to do with destroying you know, this kingdom that's happened in the past and an event that's already taken place. It's to do with our eternity. It's to do with this line here, carrying on and on and on and never ending. That's what we read about in the book of Revelation. That there is a day when we will all stand before the throne of God to give an account for how we have treated him. And just like God cast the Israelites out of the promised land, out of his presence and into the wilderness, God will rightly judge us for the way that we've treated him. And there will be no coming back. It's a really sobering reality. But if God has followed through on the judgment he said he would pass on the Israelite people here, we can be sure that God will follow through on the judgment he said he will pass on us one day. There's the awe and the face. But thankfully, that's not where we're left in the history of Hosea and Gomer's relationship. It's not where we're left in our relationship with God. And Johnny's going to come up now and read the rest of our passage for today. We're going to look at what that is. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the fields, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, You are my people, and they will say, You are my my God. 
The Lord has said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lithic of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Thank you. So we've looked at what dirty laundry is. We've looked at what dirty laundry does. Now we get to look at what God does about dirty laundry. Um, I said at the start, you might be here this morning and just have this kind of image of God in your mind as this really angry, cold-hearted dictator who wants to, to bend people to his will. You see, what we see here is anything but that. What we see here is a God who, despite constant betrayal and constant hurt, constant selfishness toward him, chooses to love us and make a way for us to come back to him and not face his judgment. It's what God is doing here with the Israelites, making a way back to him. We see how God doesn't just begrudgingly let his people come home, kind of like, all right, you kind of, come on. God actively pursues them, goes out to them, calls them to himself, and pledges himself afresh to her as they are remarried. And he makes it impossible for their relationship to be shattered again. He'll lead them back to himself. They will respond with renewed promises of faithfulness. We read that God will betroth them to himself forever. He will make a way for them to be together, betrothed in righteousness, justice, in love and compassion, in faithfulness and acknowledgement of who God is, so that they will never turn their back on him again as they come to understand this is who our God is. We can never go anywhere else. And that relationship will be restored for good. There's some pretty brutal names that Hosea is told to give to his kids, right? But here we read of their reversal in these last few verses of chapter 2. Instead of Jezreel meaning judgment, it will mean restoration. And God will show love to not loved. And God will call not my people, his people again. And so Hosea's children would grow as these walking sermons that show the amazing reality of God's love. That he makes a way for our relationship with him to be restored. There goes Jezreel walking along the road. God is a God of judgment, and we are deserving of that judgment, but God is a God who restores. There goes Lorumah, where once God had withdrawn his love and compassion for us, for we had rejected him. Now we have that in full forever. There goes Loami, where once we were not God's people because we turned away from him. Now we are God's people again because he has made that possible. 
God makes a way for relationship with him to be restored. That's what God does about our dirty laundry. So he makes a way for it to be dealt with. For our sin to be dealt with so that instead of facing his judgment, we find reconciliation. We find relationship with God again. God tells Hosea, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. So Hosea goes and finds Gomer and he buys her back. Just like God pursues the Israelites and buys them back, just like God pursues us and buys us back. And that's point four. The God who pursues us to make us his told you that story of me being in that mud pile, the mud and the other things pile, kind of disgusting. And my parents standing there walking out the door and pointing at us and going, that's disgusting. Well, what do you think they did when they saw that? They didn't just turn around and, and walk back through the door and leave us there in the muck. They came out, they took us by the hand, they, they hosed us off, cleaned us off, picked us up and took us back inside to the clean home, to the warmth and comfort with them, away from the muck and away from the filth. This is why we need Jesus. Because in Jesus, we see a God who wades into the filth of the world, the muck and sin of the world, yet who remains unmarked by it, and who dies to save us from it, dies to bring us out from it so that we can be clean, so that the judgment we deserve from God is dealt with, our dirty laundry dealt with, by Jesus taking it onto his shoulders for us. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 to 26, has this to say. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, in Jesus, we see that God is both fully committed to his justice and fully committed to his love. It's like we've been reading in Hosea this morning. Fully committed to his justice and judgment And that Jesus himself bore that on his shoulders. God's full judgment and wrath on himself instead of us. This is where we see his amazing love. That he would take that from us onto himself. You know, Hosea doesn't leave us any room to boast about what we bring to the table. See, we are entirely at God's mercy. Entirely undeserving of his love and entirely deserving of of his just anger and his right judgment. But God chooses to love us, chooses to deal with the mess we make with our sin by dying on a cross in our place to save us. We don't bring anything to the table. All we can do is come to Jesus with empty hands, trusting that what he has done is enough to save us, knowing, knowing with full assurance that it is. If we come to God in any other way, expecting that we can be made right with him, except through putting our trust in Jesus, who is the only one who can make us right with God, 
then our dirty laundry, laundry remains there as a barrier between us, not to be dealt with. But know that if you trust in Jesus, you are forgiven. If you know your dirty laundry basket is piled sky high and you don't know what to do about it, know that nothing you can do will deal with it. But know that if you trust in Jesus, that you are forgiven, that you were reconciled to your loving God. There's an early church father called Augustine who was around, uh, around the, the 4th or 5th century and he had this to say. He said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. That's exactly where we sit. We can't find satisfaction, we can't find fulfillment, we can't find life or safety anywhere else but in Jesus who brings us back to belonging with God, back to being his people. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, Hosea's experience shows us how badly sin messes up our relationship with God. But it also shows us what lengths God is willing to go to to restore what we've messed up through Jesus. Let's thank God for that now, and then we're going to sing together. Let's pray. A gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you have shown to us through your Son, Jesus, that even though we turned our backs on you, we're living in rejection of you, that you still chose to love us and to send your Son to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be forgiven. If we haven't already, help us to trust in what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. And help us to live every day in the light of knowing this grace and this love that you've shown to us. And to want to follow you, the only one we need. Amen.